Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Jesus, we're reminded that even in the midst of the kind of storm that threatens to unravel us, we can find peace because of you. And you ask much of us, but you will never ask more from us than you have given. Because of you, we are rich, we are blessed, we are full, we are greatly loved. And we pray for each one here that that would be our starting point of faith, that we would know that in the depths of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. morning. If you're new to Harvest, my name is Dave. I serve as the lead pastor here. And uh, we've been experimenting the last couple weeks with a different service format. So this is not the way it feels or looks most of the time at Harvest. And we're still tweaking it. Each staff meeting, we review what felt right, what needs to be improved on. And we're going to try to get it to a place where this Sunday experience is just right. Okay? We want it to be a time where even if you come here with lots of little kids in tow, that what you feel when you come into the service is that you are engaging directly with Jesus Christ. And we hope that we will be successful in that aim. I want to just acknowledge a few folks in this row right up here. There's a team visiting from HMCC in Ann Arbor, pastored um, by Pete Dollam and Rebbe Varghese. And Pastor Rebbe is here with the team. I just enjoyed a wonderful weekend speaking at the Revival Meeting, so it's really fun to have you guys visit. Welcome. We're glad you're here with us today. Uh, I'm not going to draw any more attention to you than that, but just wanted to acknowledge that you're here. And uh, I also just wanted to let you know, if you're joining us for the first time, we're, we've been working our way slowly through a sermon series called Life on Life. Life on Life. And that picture of two guys racing on a tandem bike, is a good picture of what Christian life is supposed to be. That it was never meant to be something we do on our own, but we grow spiritually because other people are making investment in our lives and we're making an investment in theirs. And so we're looking at the book of 1 Timothy in order to consider what we can learn from Scripture about life-on-life ministry. And this Sunday, I, that text is taking me to a really weird passage And at first I wrestled through what this has to do with people living in Metro Chicago in the year 2016 because it's a passage addressing slaves. I want to read the passage for you and then I want to unpack for you what I really believe we need to see from this important passage. The title of the message is Bloom Where You're Planted. Bloom Where You're Planted. And here's the text. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. 
Just raise your hand if you, not if you feel like one, but if you actually are a slave today. I know a lot of the, the wives and moms are tempted to raise your hands. You feel that way sometimes. But the truth is, if we're talking about vocationally, in life situation, that you're actually a slave in bondage, in chains, this passage applies to no one here today. And I think a lot of pastors have made the choice to address this as how to be a good employee in the workplace. And I will grant you that there's some relevance there, that you can think about how to be a good worker, but I think in a way that really, it sells the passage short. That it's a mistake to think that the main reason Paul gives this teaching is to teach us how to be good workers in whatever company we happen to be employed in. And so I want to take it to a different place than that this morning. I want to ask you, have you ever had a spiritual experience so significant that it made a deep mark on your soul? Maybe it was at a retreat or a revival meeting or a mission trip where you had an encounter with God that was so profound, you knew just in your heart of hearts that that experience was going to change your life forever. In fact, you came back feeling like something was new inside of you. Now, if you've never experienced that or felt that, it is my ongoing prayer for our congregation that each one of us would at least experience that once in this earthly life. I hope more than once. But if you've never experienced it, then it's no wonder that sometimes church is a little perplexing to you. Because I think without an incredible encounter with God, all of this is very confusing over the long haul. But let's say you had such an experience. Do you remember what it felt like to come down from that mountaintop experience and re-enter life in the same old garbage you left behind? Do you remember that feeling? I remember that feeling. I went to a retreat where I got saved, and I came back and I realized nothing else had changed. Family still the same. My grades are still the same. My friends are still jerks most of the time. My body's still the same. And you realize, even though you have gone through a profound inward experience, you come down from the mountaintop and you still have to go back to the real world, the one you left behind. And what you realize is, that world you left behind is still pretty messed up. And so you're struggling to reconcile this incredible spiritual experience inside with the fact that the world is still messed up outside and you've got to re-enter it. And how do you bring those two things together? Most historians estimate that in the Roman Empire, there were between 50 to 60 million slaves. That's a lot of slaves. That's like a fifth, of the, fifth or maybe a sixth of the population of our country, right? Maybe it's grown, maybe it's an eighth, but that's a lot of people. In fact, it's estimated that in most large cities throughout the Roman Empire, up to a third or a half of all the people living in a city were slaves. There's no doubt that the institution of slavery touched nearly every life at the time that Paul was writing this letter to Timothy. That it was like either you are a slave, or you own a slave, or you have a slave, or you know somebody who is a slave, or was a slave. There's no getting around the fact that slavery touched everyone in the ancient world, and so it was incredibly relevant. And if the number of passages in Scripture 
referring to slaves, giving instruction to slaves on how to be slaves as Christians is any indication there were a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire who had placed their trust in Jesus Christ and had become Christians. Now, becoming a Christian is a dramatic experience for any human being. In fact, the Bible uses words like born again or new creation, really dramatic language to tell us that being a, becoming a Christian isn't like, oh yeah, I started a new religion today. Like, I joined a new club, I started reading a great book. It's something profound that rebuilds you from the inside out. And the Bible speaks in language like that. So for these slaves who became Christians, they experienced all of that. That something deep down inside was made completely alive when it used to be dead. It was old and rotten and it became new and clean. And these people had that experience. But imagine if it's hard for us to come back from the mountaintop, to go back to middle America, to middle class middle America. Imagine what it's like to be set free in Christ and go back to your life and realize, I'm still a slave. I wonder what it's like to preach to a congregation knowing that up to a third or a half of the people at your church are the property of another human being. I mean, just think about the tension you would feel if inside you were brand new, but everything outside of you was still so messed up and stuck. Now, most scholars will say, and I think this is true, that slavery for the American mindset, has been very tainted by our experience, our practice of slavery in mid-19th century America and the pre-Civil War era slavery in the South. That colors what we think of as slavery, but the truth is that slavery in the Roman Empire was significantly more humane. It was more civilized, if you could say that about slavery in any form, that compared to what we saw in America, it was a very different kind of slavery, and yet it was still slavery even on the best day. Aristotle, in his Nicomachean Ethics, wrote this about slavery. This summed up the ancient mindset about what a slave was. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. In other words, you felt the same way about a slave as you did about your saw or your hammer or your donkey or your plow. It was just the means by which you would get something done, and it belonged to you, and it served at your pleasure, and when you were done with it, you could be done with it. Now, at the time that Paul was writing, tremendous reforms were being instituted throughout the Roman Empire so that the vast majority, up to 50% of slaves, could be expected to be set free before the age of 30, and that the vast majority of slaves in the Roman Empire would not be slaves when they died, but eventually would be set free. And yet this was the reality that a lot of these new Christians had to return to is I am free inside in Christ, and I had to return to a situation where I'm still the property of another person. How do I follow Christ when the first day of my Christian life is in the chains of bondage as a slave? Now, that's a hard congregation to preach to. I don't know how I'd do it if I were leading a church like that. For all you free people, I know how it's going to be. Here's your, here's your application, your next step, your action plan. For you slaves... Sorry. And yet, Paul, without flinching, offers this teaching to slaves. And what he says is, 
I know that at the beginning of your Christian journey, you found yourself planted in the rockiest, most hostile ground. And yet even so, this is the starting point of your journey of faith. That even in the midst of slavery, you're able to experience and understand the goodness and kindness and power of Jesus Christ. That even though your arms might remain in chains for the rest of your earthly life, The freedom Christ gives you is not a fake freedom at all. It's a real freedom. And you can actually be more free than the master who holds the key to your chains. What Paul is really saying is the bondage of your earthly life is no handicap to the ability to grow spiritually if you let Christ grow you. There's two kinds of Christian slaves who find themselves in two different kinds of situations. The first situation is that a a slave could become a Christian and go back to a household where his master was a non-Christian. And so Paul is addressing that first group in verse 1. He says, In the event that you should go back to your household and realize that though you have a new king in your heart, the master who controls your body does not honor Christ there's still a teaching that applies to you here. If you're set free, but the person who commands you doesn't honor God, that is a recipe for a lot of really frustrating situations. And what was happening was that a lot of these Christian slaves returned somehow different inside, but really frustrated at the situation they found themselves in. And it began to change their behavior. They said, yeah, I might still be a slave, but I'm the son of a king. Don't you even think about... And so they would try to get away with whatever they could get away with. They were cutting corners. They were being dishonest. They were becoming insubordinate. And what was happening was that the unbelieving masters, they didn't have any understanding of the internal change that had taken place in their slave's life. The slave was talking all this nonsense about a spiritual epiphany, but all the master saw was ever since you came back from that church service, you've been a terrible slave. You do nothing around here. You cheat. I'm worried about you stealing. I have to sleep with one eye open because I don't know if you're going to kill me and run away tomorrow. And in Ephesus, at least, but probably many other cities, a reputation was spreading that the Christian movement was bad for economics It was bad for social stability, that Christians were the kind of people you can't rely on. They disrupt and destabilize everything. Now, that's, of course, a very unjust characterization. If I were born again as a Christian and was still a slave, I might be one of those troublemakers. I understand their motivation for not wanting to be a good slave. And yet Paul gives this crazy teaching to them. He says, look, slaves, it totally sucks to be you, but I give you this teaching. That even if you are under the yoke of slavery, you consider your masters, your unbelieving masters, worthy of full respect, or translated another way, worthy of all honor. That word consider is very important because in the Greek, it's not saying that they are actually worthy of this respect, but it's saying that you make an intellectual choice to think differently about this person. 
It's not suggesting that they went back to the houses and their masters were like, oh, you're a Christian now, let me treat you better. He's saying, even if they're cruel and harsh to you, you decide in your mind for your own reasons that you will treat these masters as though they are worthy of your utmost respect. And the reason is so that God's name and the teaching of the gospel will not be slandered. Because what was happening was not just the master saying, you slave are a bad Christian. They're saying Christianity is a messed up faith. It produces bad people. And as a result, Paul was concerned, not because these people were still slaves, but because they were hindering the advance of the gospel. And that unbelieving master desperately needed to know that the gospel was for them as well. I'm, I'm amazed that Paul can dare to give a teaching like this to slaves. I'll be honest with you. If I were a pastor in Paul's place back in in the year 33 AD, or whatever he was writing this, I don't know if I could stand in front of a group of slaves and say to them, look, you're slaves, but you have to respect your masters as if they were worthy of full honor. In fact, this is not even the only place where the New Testament teaches, and this is... This is amazing to me. There's so much teaching in the New Testament telling slaves how to behave as Christians. Look at 1 Peter 2, 18-19. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. So far in the sermon, you're probably getting a little irritated because this is a very unfair teaching. Just hang with me for a couple minutes and we will untie that knot of tension that you're feeling. Here's another one from Titus 2, 9 to 10. Titus, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that... In every way, they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Put yourself in that slave's shoes for a second. I'm a Christian born again, but I'm still somebody else's property, and now you're going to tell me, don't worry about your chains, worry about your master's welfare spiritually, and worry about the advance of the gospel For others. How can you ask a slave to be considerate of his master's well-being? By human logic, that's so offensive and unfair, isn't it? That's like after your brother punches you in the face, you say, go make sure your brother's hand's okay. That's messed up. You got it all wrong here. The injustice is going this way, not that way. He should be worried about me. Why do I have to worry about him? In other words, the way most people receive this teaching is, you are asking the one with nothing to love and care for the one with everything. That sucks. How can you do that? How can you demand of me with nothing that I should care for the one with everything? Where is the fairness in that? And of course, there is no fairness in that. But the answer, brothers and sisters, is this. 
that that Christian slave is not the one with nothing in this picture. That Christian slave, because he is a Christian, has received the love, forgiveness, and acceptance of Jesus Christ. And that great love and acceptance and forgiveness grants to him a worth, a dignity, a freedom, even an authority that exceeds what his unbelieving master has. The challenge of Christian life is to actually believe that that's true. To see in Jesus the one who has given us something so great that we once had nothing and now we have everything. And i got to challenge you on this for a second because I think the biggest problem I see in the church in America today is that despite the fact that Jesus loved us so much, all of us seem to start from zero saying, when am I going to get something out of this life? We have to realize just how much we received the day Jesus received us. The challenge of the Christian life is not to drag yourself to church every Sunday, not to give up smoking, not to give up premarital sex. Those things are not the greatest challenge. The hardest part of Christian life is to believe the gospel that the day Jesus saved me, I became infinitely wealthy infinitely worthy, infinitely secure. That when I compare myself to every other person who doesn't know Jesus, I have the place of greater worth, greater blessing. You know, we Christians return from the mountaintop experience. And everybody we left behind in the real world is watching us. And the question on their hearts is, okay, you came down from the mountain with your face glowing from the experience. What difference does it really make in this world? Don't you ask yourself that question every Monday? Because let's face it, some of you can't stand being here Sundays, right? I mean, it's so hard even to stay awake. This is not your favorite place during the week. And I'm not judging you. I'm not mad at you. I'm just saying, let's be honest. This is not that meaningful for everybody who comes. You're more excited about your business, your gym workout, a drink with your friends after work. And the question is, does the reason I think you might feel that way is because somewhere along the way, maybe the connection was not made between what we celebrate here and what happens out there. The question everyone is asking is, Does this great transformation in our hearts make any difference in the real world? And one of the greatest tests of the power of the gospel is to watch somebody who is a slave the day after becoming a Christian continue to be alive because of Jesus, regardless of their chains. I think it's only when we fully realize what we have in Christ that we can, for the first time, start actually caring about other people. Do you know why ministry is so hard sometimes? It's because even as we're serving other people, we're aware of how much God still owes us. When am I going to get mine? When will someone love me? You cannot really do ministry unless your starting point 
is that in Christ I have received everything. When I talk to other preachers, one of the interesting things that we observe is when it comes to statements like that, it is so hard to say things like that in the American church and not sound cliche. Because it just sounds like the right answer that preachers are supposed to say. But it doesn't seem to energize people the way the gospel really ought to. And I want to ask you an honest question. Do you really understand Really, what Jesus did for you. Is it why you woke up and drove here this morning? The reason that Paul can dare give a teaching like this to slaves is because when he looks at them, he doesn't see slaves anymore. That's what we used to see before Jesus was what our station in life was. But now he looks at these slaves and he sees people who are set free in Christ, are his equal in every way, that despite the deficit of their worldly situation, they are no worse off than he is in front of the living God. He doesn't apologize for pushing slaves because they're no longer just slaves anymore. That is a secondary part of who they are. That when they met Jesus, Something changed in them. and They were now truly no longer defined by being slaves, but they became sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. Do you find that you're trying to live for Jesus in the midst of a life that is really difficult? A broken home a marriage that doesn't give you life anymore. Academic trials where you seem to study harder than everyone and they still get better grades than you. Isn't that frustrating? Maybe you're trying to make sense of the gospel, but you look around and your life still feels like it's in chains and you don't know how you're going to keep going. The answer is in the same place where your journey started. It's to go back and remember that in Jesus Christ, you received everything. The world will keep telling you that your life is a mess. But at the feet of Christ, what you will realize is that everything is being made new. Let me give you a second situation that some of these Christian slaves returned to. Is that they returned to homes where their masters were Christians. Now, that's a whole different kind of tension because you go back, and if it's an unbelieving master, you're like, well, I guess I'm still a slave then. But when you go back and your master's a Christian, you're like, yes. Hey there, brother in Jesus. That whole slave thing we used to have going, eh, that's played out. You're my brother now. We equals. So I will wash those dishes as soon as I'm done with quiet time and when I feel like washing those dishes. And that's what was happening all over the church. Throughout the city of Ephesus, Christians who were slaves went back to their households where the Christians were master, masters were Christians, and they were saying, we're done with this whole system. I don't, you're not the boss of me anymore. Jesus is. And again, they were feeding this idea 
that to become a Christian is simply to shirk all of your responsibilities and become insubordinate. Now, the error was not in expecting gracious treatment from a Christian brother. And the truth is that in many homes where this situation occurred, the Christian masters were very kind, very gracious to their Christian slaves. But the problem he was addressing is that a lot of these Christian slaves realize, now that you're my brother, I can get away with anything. I don't have to respect you anymore because you're just like me. We're the same. So Paul says to these guys, that's nonsense. Even though you're still a slave and they're still your master, you're both brothers in Christ. If I call you to to serve with diligence for a non-believing master... Shouldn't it stand to reason that in a house where both slave and master are Christians, there should be joy and unity? That things should work even better, that you are not just serving out of obligation, but because you love one another. What he's saying is, even if you go back and find your master is a Christian, it's not a license to be done with slavery automatically. That day may still come, but while you remain a slave... You serve your Christian master as your brother even more diligently than you would somebody else. And here's why he can say that. Because what he's saying basically is when you become a Christian, all those other distinctions between people become secondary. And what matters most among Christians is that we're Christians. Look what Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7, 20 to 22. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Who is this guy? How do you write stuff like this? Were you a slave when you became a Christian? No big deal. Why? Because although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So I like that. He's not saying slavery is is a, a bowl of punch. It's not nice. But he's saying if you can get your freedom, do so. But listen. For the one who used to be a slave when called to the faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. See, before you were a Christian, the way you looked at the world was there's bosses and there's slaves. There's winners and losers. Guys who are good at their jobs and guys who stink at their jobs. Sharks and shark food, right? Isn't that the way we think of the world without Jesus? Either I'm the eater or I'm the eaten one. That's all I see. Paul is saying that in Christ, a social revolution is taking place where it really no longer matters what situation you find your life in. The main story of your life in Christ is that your life is now in Christ. At the end of that chapter, he says, because you know what? This whole world and its present form is passing away. You might finish your life as a slave or a master, but this world will be over in the blink of an eye. None of that matters nearly as much as realizing that in Christ you now have a new identity and a new purpose for your life. I think what Paul's really saying, what God is saying to us, is that his greatest work in a Christian slave's life is not freeing him from slavery. It is shaping him into the likeness of Jesus Christ every single day. 
that God doesn't see life the way we see it. We're so defined by our worldly situation that if you're poor, you think the only thing that matters is I stop being poor. And God says, you've got it wrong. You could be poor all your life and still be totally alive in your heart. That God's greatest work is not to fix your greatest earthly deficit. It's not to take care of the thing which you think is your biggest problem. What he's saying to us is that no matter what your problem is, there's nothing stopping you from being fully alive in Christ. That he can start, whether you're a slave or a master, he can begin shaping you into the image of Jesus Christ right now. Let me finish this way. The central question being addressed in these verses is this. Does becoming a Christian make any difference at all in the real world? I've heard one Christian testify to another, God is good and he loves us very much. To which that other Christian responds, easy for you to say. Did you ever hear that? You know God loves you. Easy for you to say. You're attractive and everyone wants to be around you. Easy for you to say, you eat like a horse, never gain a pound. Easy for you to say, money seems to fall into your hands like rainwater. Easy for you to say, you hardly study and you get great grades. Easy for you to say, you hardly try and you found the mate, the love of your life. Easy for you to say, you got pregnant without even trying. We've been barren for so long. Easy for you to say, easy for you to say. What we realize is most people think that the love of God is found in the improvement of our worldly situations. That that's the proof, and God is on trial, and so far if I look at my life, he is guilty of betrayal. I get it. Life can seem very unfair and imbalanced sometimes. But when we truly see what Jesus has done in our lives and the love that he offers us. Something powerful happens and we actually are set free from that point of view. That we can clearly say, yeah, I'm struggling with grades and I'm struggling with being alone and I'm struggling with childlessness and I'm struggling with this and that and yet... That is not the greatest story being written in my life today. Because I met Jesus Christ and he started something in me that has really set me free from everything else that kept me in chains. As a close, I want to remind you of a story in Luke chapter 7 of a woman who came to a dinner party where Jesus was the guest of honor. This dinner party was taking place in the home of a guy named Simon, who was a Pharisee. And it says in Luke 7, that this woman was a shady lady. It says specifically of her, she was a woman who had lived a sinful life. Wink, wink. And everyone knew what that meant. <clears throat> it didn't mean she cheated on her tax return. It meant that she was sexually immoral. Likely a prostitute, someone who had given up on herself, believed that she was beyond the reach of God, and then she heard something about Jesus, maybe heard him speak publicly, heard rumors about the way he treated people who felt worthless. 
And a woman like this with a reputation in town would hardly dare to show her face inside of this man's house. He was a religious leader, but she burst into that dinner party and she didn't slink into the side door. She got everyone's attention and walked up to the guest of honor and interrupted everything and the people were in horror. And they said among themselves, if he had any idea what kind of woman is kneeling before him now, he would kick her out of this place and keep himself clean. But she saw in Jesus something that made her take the risk. And she took what amounted to the entirety of her earthly wealth, this alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And while normally a woman might dip out a a fingertip full each day and dab it on her neck, she broke the bottle open and poured it on his feet. And then she wept as she wiped his feet with her hair and she held on to him and everybody was horrified but it didn't matter anymore. She had spent her whole life being shamed, being told that she was worthless, that nobody would allow her in polite company, that she was worth only one thing to please men and earn a meager living. But at the feet of Jesus, she was made totally new. That day changed her life forever. You know, a lot of scholars wonder if this woman was Mary Magdalene. There's no clear evidence that that's the case. But it wouldn't surprise me one bit if she were. Because Jesus' entourage was filled with people who once felt totally worthless in this world system. And then they met him and they got freedom from everything they used to be. And that didn't mean everything changed. What it meant was they changed. They refused to be called what they used to be. They were now his. And the love and acceptance they found in him changed everything forever. That is what it means to be free. The chains on their hands were nothing. To be free was not to be no longer a slave. To be truly free is to be so alive in Jesus Christ that it doesn't matter what anyone else tells you you are. That is who you are today. Let me tell you that if God can ask a slave to love his master and remain in chains for the sake of the gospel, I think he can ask us in the midst of our broken relationship, our illness, our joblessness, our academic struggles, our singleness, our childlessness, he has the right to ask even us in the midst of all this, let me make you alive in me. Dare to hope. Don't be defeated by your chains because they cannot hold you down if I set you free. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's why we follow him. That's why we love him. And I want to invite you to bow with me in prayer. You know, we titled this message, Bloom Where You're Planted. But if we're honest, I think a lot of us We're waiting to bloom until God puts us in different soil. 
we say, I will take this journey of faith seriously once I'm out of the woods, once the pain has left my life, once I've gotten the victory in this besetting problem. And I I think Jesus is compassionate. He knows your pain, but here's what he says to you this morning. You don't have to wait until I plant you somewhere else. I'm not telling you to bloom. I'm going to make you bloom right here in this painful place, in this rocky soil where you think blooming is impossible. I'm going to make you bloom. You don't have to try to be alive. Just believe what I tell you I'm giving you. I think that's the way we need to pray this morning. Jesus, help my unbelief. I want to truly believe that I have everything in you. That you are actually making me brand new inside. And you're setting me free from every chain that once held me down. Can we just pray together in one heart that he would help us to believe that good news? Let's just pray together like that right now. Let's pray together. God, throughout your word, you have commanded so many things of us. But we acknowledge together this morning that perhaps the hardest thing you command is to believe. And if you can tell a slave to believe they are truly free, how great is the power of the gospel? How real the love of Jesus to change the human life. And that's the love we want to know and believe. Lord, we're tired of sitting in a building listening to speeches. We want to come alive to know that we come here to worship a God who is changing us, is making us alive, giving us something better to live for than what we have been. Will you break every chain in this room? And wherever we find ourselves today, no matter how hard that place is, make us bloom here and now. We believe you can do it. Help us to believe. We ask in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.